Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, 
a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member in an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with an ice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate. Hi, welcome back to the podcast. I'm so glad you joined me today. We are going to talk about common questions and answers that I receive as a special education attorney during this COVID-19 pandemic. Now, I thought it was really important to talk about this early on in the podcast because I launched this company, Ashley Barlow Company, right in the middle of COVID-19. And that's kind of a crazy time to start a new company, Um, but it was the timing was right for me. (laughs) That's all I can say. I want to give you a lot of really good, sequential, basic information in these podcasts to start. As you know, I have promised that we will dive into really specific topics. We're going to talk about eligibility for very specific disorders and disabilities. We're going to talk about self-care for caregivers. We're going to talk about those kinds of things, but I really want to start off by just giving you the basics. This topic, however, is so important and so timely right now that I wanna give it to you now. It's a little out of order. It's a little off topic from the basics and we're gonna get back to the basics. But in my law practice and across the country, attorneys and advocates are asking the same questions over and over and over again. And one of the goals of Ashley Barlow Company is to get information out to people that cannot afford or don't have the other resources to get an education attorney or an advocate. So this information is extremely important. Now, what I've done for today's podcast is I have gathered a bunch of questions that have been asked of me in the question and answer sessions that I've done for organizations. So I've had Down Center organizations call me and say, hey, could you give a question and answer session on a Zoom? I've done it for school groups, I've done it for autism groups, and I'd be happy to do it for your organization as well. But I'm going to put it here on the podcast today so that it's accessible to anybody that subscribes or follows along with me in in Ashley Barlow Company. So the first thing that I think we should talk about is my experience, because um, some of you might be new to the podcast and my experience um, might be new to you. So I was a teacher. Um, I taught German in kindergarten through 12th grade, and I only taught three years, but I always say that I still want to be a teacher. Um, teaching is in my heart. I loved, loved, loved teaching. I, and I liked all of it. I liked the report cards. I liked um, the planning. That was probably my second favorite part over actually teaching. I loved the kids. I loved the parents, even the hard parents. I loved it all. The thing that I didn't like about teaching was the bureaucracy. Um, and I realized that I needed a career where I had more control. Um, and so that is why I went to law school. I really seriously went to law school to get smarter. I didn't think that I would use my law degree. Um, I thought that I would use 
my um, the, the skills that I learned in law school in the corporate world or in some small business that I started, but I, it was not in my heart <laughs> yet. I seriously just thought, well, I don't want to get a master's in education, so I guess I'll go to law school. Um, and I went to law school and I entered a general practice and little by little, um, year by year, and this is extremely unfast forward, but little by little, I whittled down our practice areas um, and what I do mostly now is I do um, dissolution of marriage and family law um, work. Most of my cases in that work have a child with a disability. I do estate planning and most of my estate planning work is also um, special needs estate planning. And then I do special education work, which is a big bulk of my practice. That's the majority of my practice. Um, now that happened, you know, slowly over the course of my career, and it happened after I bought our law firm. Um, but that's where I am now, and that's probably where I will stay because I really love what I do. Um, I am a parent of a child with a disability. My son, Jack, has Down syndrome. I have done special education support for families since I've been an attorney. Um, I really love that area of law. Um, and because I was a, a teacher and then I became an attorney, people would ask me questions often. Um, I can't say that it was ever really fluid until I had Jack. Um, I didn't just know the answer right away, but as a general practicing, um, a general practitioner, an attorney that practices in lots of areas of law, I was able to research um, things to be able to find the answer, to be able to provide support to people. It was nowhere near something that I did a lot of. Um, and really once I hit Jack, I still didn't do a whole lot of special education support. But once we um, had our first difficult discussion with our school system, I realized how much I did know. And um, I really took some time to reflect and realized that I love that area of law. Um, and so I opened my doors officially to accept special education clients. In two years, it became my highest grossing practice area, which told me that there was such a need um, and that people um, you know, wanted my support. So that's how that happened. So I'm a former teacher, I'm a parent, um, and then I'm just kind of a natural advocate. I just have this passion that is um, really enlightened um, or fired up as um, a result of choosing this kind of work. So that's kind of my background. Um, and as I approach this question and answer, it probably will come from a little bit more of a personal standpoint than some of the um, just basic rote information that I would give you in other podcasts, um, because it's easiest to talk about my own experience and I can frame things um, within the framework that my family has used to approach the um, educational decision-making that we have approached as, um, as parents during COVID-19. So the first thing um, that I get asked often is this, children are most likely going to be behind in their IEP goals and in their educational progress, even though they've done so much. Organizations are offering Zoom courses and some children were able to access tutors or um, you know, other therapies, it, whether remotely or in person. Um, and a lot of people are saying, you know, we don't have an evaluation coming up and we don't have 
um, any meeting coming up. So how do we ensure that our um, teachers and therapists are taking time to review the information and to reevaluate where the child is so that um, we don't have, you know, a big gap in services or so that they're getting their um, services where they are right now. Um, and so here's the answer to that. Um, what we say in education is data drives instruction. And we say that in special education all the time. Data should drive instruction. And I really cannot in encourage you enough to um, think about data and to progress monitor yourself if you are a parent um, or someone that supports a child with special education and you aren't in school, you aren't coming at it from a teacher because you're, if you're a teacher, you're required to progress monitor. Um, but what we need to do is we need to look at that data. And so within the first, oh, I don't know, two weeks of school is probably reasonable. We should have baseline data on all of the child's goals. And that includes therapy goals and educational goals and behavioral goals and all of those. Um, and so when this school year starts, any year, we should get good data. We should evaluate the child on all of those goals. In addition to that, you know, if we're talking about children in general education, we should also look at their reading scores and their math scores and all of those other things. So a lot of districts choose to use um, programs like STAR or MAP. Um, that tell you a general um, baseline score for a child at the beginning of the year. And we should get that information. And then we should compare it to where we were in May of last year, and arguably also in the winter of last year, January or February, before most schools closed down due to COVID-19. So we should look at those and see where the regression or, progr or progress occurred. Um, and if there's progress, then we should really tap into that and say, okay, well, why did we make progress? And what teaching strategies were used? And how did this work out? Why did we get that progress? And see if we can capitalize on that. Um, and of course, if there's regression, then we need to look at the regression and see what we need to do to, um, to regain those skills. Um, teach, reteach, we might need to add minutes. You know, there's lots of things that we can do to get to regression. Um, a lot of people say to me, you know, I know my child has regressed and I am very concerned about that. Um, and so what can we do at that time? And I think a, a huge thing that you should consider is um, starting off this 2020 to 21 school year on the right foot. Um, and that might mean adding more in-person instruction time, because if there's a lot of regression um, and your child has not been taught in person since early March of 2020, um, you know, we can look at that factor and say, okay, well, that's likely the factor that caused that kind of regression. Um, now, you might want to look at it in relation to prior year's regression. So, um, you know, you might wanna look at prior summers and think, okay, did we lose skills at 20% or 40% or 60% over the course of other summers? Can we compare this to other summers? Because we can really get into the data to look to see um, what we've done in years past. Ultimately, we're trying to figure out that puzzle. We're trying to figure out how we can get a child to get back up to baseline and then ultimately make progress on those annual goals. So the answer to the question is, 
data drives instruction. We need to look at the data and then use the data to get back where we were. Um, we're going to talk about compensatory education a fair amount today. And so a lot of people um, you know, keep hearing this word compensatory education. We sometimes just shorten it to comp ed. Um, and so what is comp ed and why is it applicable here? Um, so compensatory education is not found in the um, statute or in the regulations. It's not an idea um, and it's not in the regulations that interpret idea. Um, so what is it? It's found in case law. And what it is, is it is a, um, a damage, a reward that a person gets in special education if one of two things happen. It happens, it, it is awarded oftentimes if a service is not delivered at all. So if a child um, is supposed to get, you know, an hour's worth of reading instruction per day and that instruction doesn't happen. The child never shows up um, to reading instruction or the speech therapist is on maternity leave and they don't hire a substitute for speech. Then we should get compensatory services to make up for that lost instruction. Um, the other time that it happens is if a child does not make progress on a goal um, and it is um, kind of obvious that the child should have been making progress. So in that case, what happens is a court will say to the school, you know, you set this goal um, and you had people on this team and you thought that the goals were reasonably anticipated to have been met within a year and it didn't happen. You didn't fulfill your end of the bargain. And so you need to provide compensatory services, compensatory education in order to compensate the person, the student for um, that lost progress, that lost opportunity. Um, now, compensatory education is not a one-for-one -one deal. So it's not like, okay, well, you missed, um, you know, 1,040 minutes of speech and therefore you're entitled to 1,040 minutes of speech back. The purpose of it is to put the child in the place that the child reasonably could have been anticipated to have been in. <laughs> so to put the child in the place that they should have been in if the service had been delivered or if reasonable progress had been made. So we just wanna get the child up to the point that we think the child should have been able to achieved by this finite period of time. Um, now, how can services be delivered? So they can be delivered by school professionals. It could be that the teacher provides extra minutes um, either during the school day or after school or in the summer or during some kind of break, etc. Um, or it can be also delivered monetarily. So we can say, you know, we're entitled to 40 hours and we've got a um, an intervention specialist or a tutor or a speech therapist that does not work for the school that is willing to provide the time at $40 an hour. So we're just going to multiply that out and see what the monetary award should be. So that is what compensatory services are. So kind of tie those two concepts together, data drives instruction with compensatory services. If we reach a point, and this is going to happen during this COVID-19 pandemic, it is going to happen and it is okay. It is okay. Comp Ed does not have to be something that is extremely conflictual. We are going to lose progress. 
In some children, we are going to lose a lot of progress. There are going to be services that we cannot get. That is all okay. And to award or to ask for compensatory education is also okay. It doesn't have to be adversarial. It doesn't have to be a big to-do. It's going to happen. And I think if we all go into this saying it's going to happen and that's okay, kind of like we have to go into the pandemic and learn and know that people are going to get sick. And we have, that's not okay, but it's a fact. People are going to get sick. COVID-19 is proving itself to be extremely contagious. And so we have to know that people are going to get sick. If we're going to open up a football team or if we're going to open up a school, we know people are going to get sick. And so what we have to do is we have to figure out um, how we're going to deal with that. And in some cases, some schools have decided we're not going to open to in-person learning or we're only going to open to in-person learning in a blended model or um, we're going to open in-person learning. And here's what we're going to do when people get sick, because I think everybody can agree on the fact that people are going to get sick and then we all have to make decisions around that. Um, so similar to that, compensatory education is going to be a fact. And if we all hold all this animosity around the concept of a damage of compensatory education, um, we aren't going to collaborate very well. So what happens is at some point parents might ask or schools might offer compensatory education or compensatory services for lost services um, as a result of um, the lost time or the lack of progress. And that's the way that it would work. Um, so that's kind of a long answer to that first question, but I think it's a really important question. And as we go through these things, things are gonna become redundant. And so I will answer kind of the same thing over um, and over again, and we'll reference that, um, that discussion again. So the next question is, am I entitled to an IEP meeting now? Um, and we've talked about this before. IEP meetings are called something different in a lot of states. So in your state, it might be a PPT or an ARD or an ARC meeting. Um, but am I entitled to a meeting with my child's IEP team right now? So the answer to that is yes, you are always entitled to call an IEP team meeting. Um, you can call one at any time for any reason. The um, the answer might be a little bit more complicated though, because some people are concerned that their districts are, some parents are concerned that their districts are going to try to change IEPs to lessen the obligation on districts in order to um, kind of cruise through this school year. And um, then some people say, well, I'm not getting any services. And the only way for me to get any services is to call an IEP team meeting. Um, and I think there's you know, value to all of that. So there isn't a blanket answer to, am I, to should I call an IEP team meeting because there's so many different factors. What I wanna spend some time talking about though is um, what would happen if an IEP team meeting were to occur. Um, I think the first thing that I'll say though is if you can, kind of a blanket rule is I would prefer to do an informal meeting over an IEP team meeting because an informal meeting is not going to be as, um, as binding in a um, legal sense as stuff that you would put into a prior written notice document or a revised IEP. 
But if there's a reason to have an IEP team meeting, or if the school mandates that there's an IEP team meeting, um, or if your state um, Department of Ed is mandating it, because some states are saying every single IEP should be reviewed and every single parent should sign this waiver um, and that kind of thing, there's a couple of things that I think I would ask for as a parent. Um, so one thing, and that I would suggest as a school on the other hand, um, one thing that I would suggest is that you say, okay, we'll agree to these changes, you know, whatever the changes are, but we want to agree in this meeting that when we return to in-person learning, the last in-person IEP is the one that controls. So this one that we're writing right now, we can agree that this is only COVID specific. This is for this finite time period when it is um, unsafe to access in-person learning or when we are accessing learning in a blended model or when um, you know we're choosing whatever model we choose and there's all kinds of jokes about all the different kinds of models. But the bottom line is, I recommend that you say that your last in-person IEP is the one that you would go back to. So let me give you an example about why you might wanna look at this. Um, and I'll tell you my child's example. So my child is um, in, 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 in an inclusion setting. He is in his general education classroom a large majority of the day. Um, and we as parents and as a team have agreed that he is really well served by being with his typical peers, with his non-disabled peers as much as possible. Um, and so we really want to make sure that we watch the time that he gets with his non-disabled peers. Um, now, if you were to apply that in a distance learning setting, which is necessary in our family because of some medical concerns that our child has, um, then you would say, well, then he's entitled to get on every single Zoom meeting that his general education peers have. So I want him in the morning meeting when they um, you know, do some leadership stuff and some chapter book stuff and some language arts stuff for an hour. I want him then on the math meeting when they are doing fourth grade math, even though he's in a second grade math um, class, you know, so he does math on a second grade level. I want him in um, the fourth grade, that's a half an hour. I want him in the fourth grade science, which is, if it's in person, is another 30 minutes. And I want him in a special area class, which is another 30 minutes. I want him on teams with his non-disabled peers, which is the way the, the law um, references his typical um, classmates. I want them, I want him there all of that time. Um, well, here's a fact about my little boy. He does not like to talk on the phone or to be on a Zoom. He doesn't like it and he doesn't do well on it. And if he's forced to do it, even if we align all the stars and we do a go noodle activity in the beginning and we um, use a weighted blanket and we have a fidget and we have the instruction ahead of time and I can even provide him a, um, a model or a social story to participate or a framework for his participation, even if it is done absolutely by the book and he does it, he will be totally derailed for probably another hour after it because it is just so not preferred for him. And so here's another fact about him. If he is working one-on-one -on -one with me at home, 
he does beautifully. He does amazingly. His reading progress since we have been home due to COVID-19, it has skyrocketed. It's wonderful. So we have this really great progress when we're one-on-one -on -one with mom and we have this like really debilitating um, dysregulation that occurs if we are fatigued by doing Zoom classes. Now, this is a really weird situation because, you know, I always tell the school, here's inclusion lady about to talk against her interests, right? Because what I want to say is, let's just let him do one-on-one -on -one with mom at home and let's do, you know, enough resource time and enough speech time and enough OT time that he remembers that his um, speech teacher and his resource teacher or his special education teacher and his occupational therapist are, um, you know, that they care about him and that they love him and that they're the bosses um, and to give some really great content. Um, and so it becomes kind of this like balance of the equities and balance of all of the factors. And that's really what we do in all cases, right? So for me, the bottom line is this is a really, really crazy time. And what do I wanna focus on? Do I wanna focus on teaching my child how to participate in a Zoom class? Or do I wanna participate on the progress that he's making and capitalize on the progress that he's making? Well, in my case, I wanna, I have the resources. I can stay home with him in the mornings to get him going and, and the rare occasion that I have a court hearing or a meeting or something, um, my husband can do it and we can rework our work schedules. So in that case, you know, it is working out very, very well. Um, but I don't want for there to be a precedent that says, well, he did really well in that one-on-one -on -one with mom time. And so we need to put him in a really small group setting at the end, right? And so that's why I want, if we were to put that in a document that says he's gonna get one-on-one -on -one time with mom, which is not happening in my case, but he's gonna get one-on-one -on -one time, let's say that the student is getting one-on-one -on -one time at school, and then the progress skyrockets. Well, that ignores all of the arguments of inclusion that apply to normal school, right? When there's no risk of, of um, damage to your, or there's a very low risk of damage to your health. Um, and so I recommend that you go back to that last in-person IEP so that you kind of account for the progress or the benefits that are gonna happen um, in this situation. It also um, can happen the other way, you know, that there are detriments that then a school will say, well, there was all this regression and we really need to shake up the IEP. Um, so that's my recommendation relative to having an IEP meeting. The next question is, what practical steps can I take to be equipped for the meeting? Um, and in this case, I'm going to refer you to a resource that's on my website. Um, and as you know, the website is www.ashleybarlowco.com. And on that website, there is a toolkit um, that prepares you for remote learning. And I'll walk you through the steps very quickly so that um, it makes sense um, as you're listening to this podcast but um, I really do encourage you to go to the tool because it'll walk you through um, it on a step-by-step -step basis. 
So what I recommend that you do is that you get out that IEP document and you get out three markers. Now I like the stop right color, the stop light colors because I think it's easy for us to process. Um, so I would recommend red, yellow, and green. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna read every single word. And every place that you come to a mandate on home or school, you are going to highlight or underline or circle it in red, green, or did I say blue? Red, green, or yellow, pardon me. Red, green, and yellow, like a stoplight. My kids are colorblind, so they might see something as blue. Um, and so red means this cannot be done in the learning model that we've chosen. So if you've chosen 100% virtual or a blended model or an in-person model, there might be some things that can't be done in person because you know maybe somebody can't come into the school or maybe it would require too much PPE um, or you know whatever. There's all kinds of different circumstances <laughs> that are happening right now and we just have to think about them uniquely. So red means this cannot be done and that's okay. Remember the conversation about compensatory education. My example on this is a child that has a vision impairment and the child might be entitled to orientation and mobility services. Well, if the school district has prohibited one-on-one -on -one contact, then we cannot safely access O&M because in order for O&M to work, then we need to have proximity. We need to be close to someone to support the child as they go out and experience the community in a safe manner. And so we might not be able to do that. If you color something red, you can then think about, well, what do we need to think about in order to get this back on the right track? And when are we going to be able to get it back on the right track? So what you might say is, you know what, this is red and we can't do it for right now, but I'm only willing to wait three months or one semester or three quarters or set the time period. And then I wanna look back at it or this is red, but I don't think the child's actually gonna regress that much. So why don't we continue to assess the child's skills because I think they might retain the skills. So why don't we assess the skills and if the skills dip below some, um, some progress level or some statistic or some kind of generalization, then we'll look at it. Look at a framework to say, when am I not gonna tolerate this anymore? Or another suggestion is this is red and that's unacceptable, but we can do it privately. And so maybe we need compensatory services now because it's not practicable to do at school, but it is possible to do privately. And since the school has an obligation to provide that free appropriate public education, maybe now's the time to ask for compensatory services. And that's okay. Remember, it's okay. The next color would be yellow. Yellow means eh, it doesn't really work with this learning model, but we could tweak it. And so how could we tweak it in order to make it accessible? So an example of that might be, and this might be something red that I turned yellow too. You know, everybody's red and yellow and green is going to be somewhat subjective to their family's situation, right? Um, so an example, in my family is my child gets Orton Gillingham reading instruction. Well, I'm not certified as an Orton Gillingham reading instructor, um, but his resource teacher is. And so in my case, it's yellow. Now, why is it yellow? Because he's supposed to have so many minutes of OG per week. Well, it's yellow because his teacher is doing such a fabulous job at getting me the resources and kind of coaching me along that his reading progress is off the charts. We added another strategy 
um, last week, the second week of school, and his retention is improving again. And so I knew in my heart, knowing my own child, that it wasn't a red. It wasn't like, oh, well, you know, I'm not certified in OG, and so that can't happen. Rather, I thought, how can we tweak this? How can we build upon this? And so what we do in our plan um, is that she provides me some support and then I provide her feedback on how he's doing. Sometimes it's video, sometimes it's um, telephone conversation or email or something like that. And then she provides me more suggestions. And along the way, I'm learning a lot of strategies, which has been fun for me. Green obviously means this can be accomplished, but I really think that it's important still to use the green so that everybody can agree that this is going to continue to happen in one particular way. So once you do that, then you communicate. And whether you're a teacher that's done that or you're a parent that's done this stoplight model, you communicate with the other team members and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing and this is kind of the whole picture. I've done some work. And now I recommend or I ask respectfully that you do some work and that we meet to kind of come up with a good distance learning plan. Um, so that's the way I recommend that you prepare for the IEP meeting um, or the informal meeting, whatever um, you choose for um, getting kind of on the right track before the school year starts. The number one question that people have asked me is, what about my child's one-on-one -on -one aid, instructional assistant, teacher's assistant, the person that is supposed to support my child? And it's a really easy answer that's complicated. So the really easy answer is, you are entitled to all services in your child's IEP. And if your child's IEP has additional adult assistance or a one-on-one -on -one, um, adult assistant of some sort, then you're entitled to it, um, or your child is entitled to it. The child is entitled to it, from whatever perspective you're looking at this. Um, however, it's complicated because there are a lot of factors that make that um, knowable or yesable. What do I mean by that? Like, you know, attorneys, I always say, no doesn't mean no to an attorney. It means, well, how else could we think about that? Um, and so ultimately, when I'm in a discussion with somebody, I'm looking for something that is yesable, something that's tolerable, something that I can um, that I can sink my teeth into, right? And so if we look at um, having an instructional assistant support a child that's learning at home, we have a lot of factors to consider. One is the insurance policy of the school. The insurance policy might not allow a school professional to go into the home of a child. You know, there can be risks in the home. Um, there can be all kinds of different things that could happen. And so it might not be um, possible or practicable from the school system's perspective. There also might be timing considerations. Um, a lot of one-on-one -on -one assistance um, support more than one child at a time. So they might have three or four children in one classroom that they support. And obviously we can't divide a person in half to take that person um, you know, to all four of the children's homes. Um, and some children might be, some, some adults might be supporting a child that is um, participating in in-person learning in addition to a child that's participating in learning from home. And so that might be a complicating factor. The last complicating factor might be time. 
So you have to remember that learning at home is most likely more efficient than learning at school. Because when we're at school, there's all kinds of time that's really, really, really important. Um, but there's time that is not um, content rich. So we are walking all the way to the gym and all the way back. And when we use the restroom, we wait for everybody else to use the restroom. And um, if another teacher comes in to ask a question or to express a concern about a child or just to take a break, um, the children are learning to wait until adults are finished talking before they do something. And so there's all of this kind of wait time that happens in a school. And if you're learning on your own pace, you aren't experiencing that wait and transition time. And so, you know, I think it's unreasonable to say, well, my child wants one-on-one -on -one adult assistance for the entire eight hour school day. I simply think that that um, in most cases is going to be unreasonable. Now there are cases where that is extremely reasonable. Um, and, and those cases are um, also, you know, important. But what I encourage you to do is to kind of look at all of the factors and then to make a reasonable request. Um, and the way I define reasonable is under the shadow of the law. So anytime somebody comes to me with an issue, I am always thinking about the parameters within which a judge might make a ruling. So, you know, the judge might land between um, uh, an hour a day for the instructional assistant and the entire eight hour school day. And so where within those seven hours um, are, the, are, are the factors going to bump one hour up to two or take eight hours down to five? And then what area, what, where is the gray area where an administrative law judge might um, render a decision because ultimately what we know is that we can always end up in court if we can't reach an agreement. Um, so as I said, <laughs> the answer to that is very complicated. It is yes, which is easy. You're entitled to all services in, a, in an IEP, but there are lots of factors that go from yes to um, yes, but, and we can leave it at that. Um, so Another question um, is, how do you go about this process? How do you make the decision in the very, very, very beginning about where your child's going to learn or what learning model your child is going to, um, is going to use for the school year? And I think the answer to that is, you've got to decide what factors are important to you. So what I recommend that you do, and this is not how I did it, it's kind of me in retrospect, is I recommend that you take a stack of post-it notes and you write down all the different factors that are on that post-it that, that you can think of. So, um, I don't know, ventilation in the school and um, whether the school is requiring testing, whether the school is requiring masking, um, the psychological effect on your child, um, the social effect on your child, you know, put all of that up there and stick it to a wall and look at all your post-it notes and prioritize them. So you're probably gonna come up with 30 or 40 different factors. These are all of the things that we're gonna consider. And here's the way that we value them as a family. And look at them all. And this is a really great strategy if parents are divorced. So look at them, mom does them, dad does them, we make the list together, and then mom prioritizes and dad prioritizes. 
And I bet when you prioritize, your top three aren't gonna be six. You know, it's not gonna be mom's three and dad's three. It's probably gonna be four or five. You know, I bet you have some that are in common. So we're gonna look at that list and we're gonna say, okay, this is what we value. Now, if our number one factor is our child's health, then we know we probably need to talk to the pediatrician and to you know the immunologist and the endocrinologist and the other people that um, are that we weigh um, that we allow to weigh in on on our medical decision making. And then we're going to um, look at you know if it's masking, then we're going to call the school and say, hey, what's your policy on masking? And we're going to look at all those criteria. And then that's how we're gonna make our decision. And it's going to be as objective as possible. You might even, for every single factor, kind of weigh it as like a, a zero to five or something like that, so that you're kind of making it data-driven and it's not so such an emotional um, discussion. Who's on the team to make that decision? You know, I think your child's specialist, your child's doctors, um, any healthcare provider, excuse me, any childcare provider, you know, if you rely on somebody to provide childcare for your child, their um, opinion might matter in the decision making because they might say, you know, if you send your child to school, then I'm not going to be able to provide childcare because that's too much of a risk for me. Obviously, um, your employer, you know, what your employer thinks about your schedule is important as well. Um, you know, so those are the kind of the people on, um, on the team. And then finally, I think it's really, really, really important to go into the school year with some standards that you should set out. After looking at your list of priorities, you should set out some standards that say, okay, when are we gonna know if we need to make a change? If we've chose re chosen remote and it's not working and we know we need to get back to in-person, what's kind of our, um, our trigger gonna be? Does our data need to drop to this point? Does the therapist need to say, yeah, this is not working out socially? What do we need to have happen before we say, okay, we need to change modalities? And if you've chosen in person, um, what percentage of positive cases need to be um, occurring in the school? Or what um, 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 proximity of infection needs to occur before you say, okay, it's not mandated by the state, but we're gonna pull our child home and we're gonna start that remote learning option because we don't think it's safe anymore. I think if you set those out in the beginning and you really think about them in the beginning, the decision is gonna be easier when it's in the moment because again, you can take the emotion out of that and you already have the framework and you've thought about the framework when, you're, when you are not emotional and you're not facing seen um, a crisis because crises can happen um, during a world health pandemic as we have experienced. Um, so those are the criteria that I would look at to actually make the decision about the learning platform as it occurs. So I have three tips that I think it kind of summarize all of this together. The first tip is to communicate. The key to this crazy wild year is gonna to be to communicate with the other people on your IEP team. I know you're surprised to hear that because that's what I talk about all the time. Communicate, communicate, communicate. Something's not working, talk about it. If something is working great, compliment. If something needs to be tweaked, ask. 
just communicate. You're gonna be so tired of talking, unless you're me, because I love to talk. The second thing is be patient. Change happens um, at a very, very slow pace in some cases, and that's okay. This is all just going to be weird. And we all need different strategies to be patient. So like, I am not a patient person and I have walked more than I've ever walked in my life because that is what helps me to calm down. It's what helps me to um, kind of rejuvenate myself. And um, so I'm having to walk a lot in order to be patient and to not make rash decisions. So figure out what you need in order to be patient. Um, and the last thing is stay flexible. So things are gonna change as we just talked about, and that's also okay. And if we go, I hate change. If my husband says we're getting Mexican for dinner, and then um, he comes home and says he really wants Italian, I am in a bad mood. I don't like change. But I always tell myself change is good, and in this case, I think we need to go into it with the mindset that things are going to change. And we don't have any control over that, so we've just gotta roll with it. So be um, communicative, be patient, and be flexible. I hope it's a good year. If it's not going well, communicate, communicate, communicate. We'll all get through it together.